for coming from Gilbert, from Love It, Singapore. Right. Yeah, it'll be a 20, 22 slides thing. Right. Probably will end about 30, 40 minutes. Then we start with a Q&A. Right. Um, a little bit of my background, right? I'm doing a lot of charity work in Singapore as well. Right. We help the elderly poor and the homeless people for the past 10 to 12 years. I'm also an activist. I think you know by now. <laughs> I won't go into that. So we begin to go into uh, Middle East, right? About seven, eight, nine years ago. And we go there twice a year during Ramadan and during the winter eight. Right, so I'm leaving again in December, right? For a month in Lebanon. I don't go to Syria, right? I guess it's too dangerous. So I go strictly to Lebanon, where I'm more based in Beirut. Right, the capital of Lebanon. Someone asked me, all of you asked me, why Lebanon? Right, why Lebanon? Why not Afghanistan? Why not Cambodia? Why not, you know, Iraq? Well, the simple reason is I was invited to a conference in Lebanon. Right, it's a Palestinian uh, Syrian refugee conference. So while there, I realized, wow, first, there's not many Asian. Secondly, there's no Singaporean in Lebanon doing humanitarian work. I think there are a lot in Indonesia, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, or even in Malaysia, but very few in Middle East. So I said, hey, that's something I think I can carry the flag of Singapore into Middle East, right, doing some good work. So I was there uh, for 10 times. So each trip I spent about a month or two my visa allows me to enter Lebanon freely. In fact, there's no visa. I can just walk in, get my passport job. I'm given three months of stay. Right, so it's easier. So the Singapore passport give us a lot of entry into the Middle East. <laughs> wow, I said the wrong thing, <laughs> Jack. Hello, we just leave it on the floor. Right, don't put it up. It keeps dropping. So I would say being a Singaporean going into Middle East does help, right? We are very respected, right? A lot of countries respect us. And the passport also give us easy entry into Middle East. I have an American friend who needs visa to get into quite a lot of countries in the Middle East. But being a Singaporean, it gives me a lot of access, right, into the Middle East. So that's the background. I'll go to the slide. Okay, there are 22 slides, so it wouldn't take too long, I hope. And in the midst of this, you can ask questions, right? Probably it's more interesting. Uh. <laughs> okay, while Lebanon, I went through that uh, topic to humanitarian crisis, where we touch a bit on that. Then the topic three will be Palestinian refugees. Topic four, Syrian. And the last topic is what we can do, right? It's a group. Singaporeans or as a Middle East Institute. Okay, I actually have this dream uh, to put Singapore, a uh, map of Singapore into Middle East. There's really very few Singaporeans right, in the Middle East doing humanitarian work. Right? So it's my dream to inspire more Singaporeans like you, right, all of you, right, to venture to places of the less, less trodden for humanitarian work. But there's a huge, huge bucket that's untapped and unspoiled for us Singaporeans to go there. But there's very few. I think there's one only in uh, Iraq. Uh, there's a 
Habibi, Habibi NGO doing quite well in Iran. I think there's none in Afghanistan. Right. There's probably only me, I think only me in Lebanon. Right. There's none other that I know going to Lebanon. And there's very few in Jordan. I know many went to Jordan for their their humanitarian work, no? Singaporean students, mostly Muslim, but very few in Lebanon. And I think zero in Afghanistan, and only one or two in Iran. So these are very untapped places for humanitarian work. But I think why it's untapped is because it's risky, right? Isn't it? It's dangerous. Like Lebanon, oh my God. When I talk to my friends, none want to go. But they give money, they donate. But they don't want to go. Until now, 10 trips, I only could persuade one girl, a French Singaporean girl to follow me once only to Lebanon. Other than that, nobody wants to go with me. And we provide airfare, right? free airfare. We provide lodging. We even cover your expenses. No tickets. <laughs> So it shows uh, it's not the best of places uh, for Singaporeans right, to do humanitarian work. They rather go to Cambodia, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, China, but not Middle East. Right. Yeah, Le Lebanon, right, uh, very smack in the middle. On top is uh, Jordan, right. Below Lebanon is Syria. Then there's Israel. As you know from the news, Israel and uh, Lebanon are at war, still technically at war. But in fact, when I was there the last trip, there was some bombing by Israel to South Lebanon. And the Hezbollah, a terrorist group operating in Lebanon, also fired away rockets into Israel. And now it's getting worse. The Palestinians are killing each other in the refugee camp in South Lebanon. So it's not really the best of time to go right and i'm going in december <laughs> right but i'm not based in south uh, lebanon where there's a lot of conflict right i'm more based in beirut so i goes more to uh the Bekaa valley right this side right Bekaa valley and uh, tripoli right the north side because that's where i operate more that's where the Syrian camps are. Most of the camps are in the north side, north Lebanon. Right? Most of the Syrians are <clears throat> in the north side. So uh, it's a small country, 10 times the size of Singapore. Right? Not too big. Population, same as Singapore, 5 million. And out of 5 million, about 1.5 million are refugees. 1 million uh, Syrians, half million Palestinians. So you have all kinds of people right, moving around in Lebanon. But Asian, like me, hardly. Right, I don't see many. I see Filipinos. Right, they work as domestic mates. But I don't see Chinese. I don't see myself. Right, I don't see another Asian much moving about. Right, but I see Filipino. They, someday they have the off day. They come out to you know, enjoy the off. But other than that, yeah, I don't see many Asian. But there are many, uh, you know, you're from Oman, right? Yeah, there are many Arabs there. So uh, you will fit in. <laughs> I don't fit in. But I'm a target for kidnapping. 
Right, because I look so different. Uh, if they know I'm from Singapore, yeah, it's quite a high chance right, I get uh, kidnapped. But I don't feel I'm at risk. I don't feel that, you know, I'm in danger really. I don't know, maybe I'm a bit more high risk type. But I don't feel that I get into danger. But though there are adventures, I'll tell you later, of how I got uh, detained by the Lebanese army. Right. So all these are things you have to have stomach for. And they are allowed to carry weapons. Right. You can get uh, see someone getting a rifle into a supermarket. Right. So these are things you have to have the stomach for. Or they can brandish a rifle, a pistol at their belt. Right. So these are things uh, you have to have stomach for. Yeah, we also uh, chiefly provide humidity. Right? We have uh, provide fuel for winter warm. I think some places is snow and many actually uh, elderly people, right? They actually passed away when uh, we were there. So during the thick of winter, if in January or February, right, you see the whole place is white, the northern part. Right? So there are snow and uh, so some old people do die you know, from the cold, right? So these are things that we do for them. Not very extensive, but we do something. Uh, because we are small NGO, probably one man show. So every time I go, I bring 10, 20,000 US and I just spread the money. I buy food, I buy uh, one more, uh, right, I buy uh, things to support them. Right. Yeah, we also uh, give food supply, like cooking oil, bread, seeds, paste, noodles, rice. Right. They are very dependent on external aid. Right. They don't work. They can't work also. So they are fully dependent on NGO to help them. And I think they are withdrawing it, the UN, you know, uh, the Lebanese side. In fact, the last trip I went, I could not enter the camp because the Lebanese army blocked us. So we can't go in. Right. They say, no, no, now we don't allow NGOs to come. Right. You, you are not allowed to go in. The previous trip, we could go in quite easily, right? We can just uh, go in and come out. Now they block us because I think they want the refugees to go back to Syria. Right? So they block all NGOs from entering. Yeah, this is a very remote part of uh, Lebanese-Syrian border. Right? You can see up to where the Russian has. <laughs> so it's very cool, right? And uh, we give food passes right, in black back to these uh, refugees. Syrian refugees in the very northern part of the Lebanese-Syrian border. In fact, somewhere you can see over the hills is Syria. Uh, but I never enter Syria because it's just too risky. But I never attempt to. Though there's, there are challenges. Uh, there are cars that will bring you to Damascus for about 50 US. But I never dare to enter. Because <laughs> I'm scared I can't come back. <laughs> oh. Yeah, this uh, sample of the food parcel, like one box is 30 US. So this box have uh, pasta, you know, uh, noodles, uh, oil, uh, uh, spaghetti, you know, juices. So it, it can last two weeks. And normally we order about 50 to 100 boxes. So it costs about 3,000 right, per distribution. So you can benefit about one to 200. Right, refugees. And this we got from a wholesaler 
and this is considered cheap. I think when it go, goes back, right, probably it costs about $50 now. Because inflation has gone up a lot. Right? And the Lebanese currency, if you know by now, it has devalued by a whole lot. Right? I think about 90%. It used to be 1,005. You can change, uh, no, uh, 1,500. Okay. 1,500 uh, Lebanese uh, lira is changeable to 1 US. Now, 100,000. So you need 100,000 to change 1 US. Just like, it's terrible. So oil, you know, a bottle of oil can cost like 200,000 Lebanese lira. So you can imagine the impact of this devaluation on the population. So about 70% of Lebanese population living in poverty, but 70%, because everything has devalued. Like lunch that I went to eat, it cost uh, 300,000 Lebanese lira. It's about three US, but to a Lebanese earning in Lebanese currency, 300,000. Probably their income is only 2 million Lebanese lira, but a plate of rice costs to 300,000 Lebanese lira. That's a hell of a lot of money. And when I go there, I, I feel like I can spend like a king. That's I bring in US dollar. Right, I live like a king. Like, I tell my friend that I have to bring in cash because I can't withdraw money from the ATM. So I will put 5,000 here, 5,000 here. US dollar. <laughs> right, this how... We operate. And I hide the money in floorboard, no, in the house, for fear that there's a robbery you know, or someone rob you. So I bring ten thousand all cash. And if I need money, I have to go to Turkey, Istanbul, to draw from the ATM, because Lebanese ATM doesn't work. The bank is down. In fact, the Lebanese have to rob their own bank for their own money deposit. Right. So it's a cowboy country, right? very un-Singaporean. <laughs> yeah. There's no uh, street lights in the night. Everything is pitch black. Then the city is the uh, region. Like 8 to 10, you have uh, power. Then 10 to 2, you have no power. Then 2 to 4, you have power. Right. So all this, you have the stomach. I'm not used to it, really. I find it frustrating. That I don't have internet, I don't have power, you know, I have to charge all my phone when the power is on. And water, you can't drink. Right? You have to buy your own mineral water. I even bathe in mineral water. <laughs> I'm so kiasu. I buy the mineral water and bathe it. Because the water is just so dirty. Yeah, I don't dare to touch it. Yeah, we also do uh, APTA support. Right? We help with the fasting program. Because we realize some of them fast, but they don't have the means to break fast, right? which I think is an important element uh, for Muslim. Right? So we help to buy uh, food for fasting. And you can see these uh, refugees, right? She's pouring over very simptuous chicken rice. Right? It's their favorite food right? for uh, Ramadan. Ah, uh, yeah, this one. Uh, make my mouth water. <laughs> Right, this whole thing costs about 12 or 11 US right, with whole chicken, with very good food, and uh, with yellow rice. Right. I think it can be consumed by 3 to 3%. Right. 
probably two adults and two child. And this to them is very sumptuous because they don't get to eat this good. Right? Because it's a lot of money you know, for them, 10 to 12 US. Right? Probably their salary is like 80 to 100 US a month. So no refugee will eat this right? unless we are the one that give it to them. So we are proud uh, to serve some of them because of the cause of it. Right? We, we can't serve everyone, but we do our best. Uh to serve those that we can. So like I say, each trip we go, we spend 10, 15,000, right? And there are times that we go to 20,000. It depends on the donation. And donations come from all walks of life, like the public, you know, church friends, uh, Muslim friends. So we take in donation, but locally, we can't take in a donation from a foreigner. I think you know it's disallowed in Singapore. Yeah, we also serve this school right uh, in the north part of uh, Lebanon, right where we provide them one thousand dollars and it benefited three hundred Syrian kids, right. So you can see they are all waiting there, you know, after they are fasting to consume the food. But it's simple food like bottled water, some milk, and uh, some those uh, bun, you know, those uh, oven bun. So with this, yeah, I, I think it's well spent, right? $1,000, you can help 300 Syrian school kids. Yeah, we also help Palestinian school, right? Also $1,000 where they cook very good chicken uh, with rice, uh, with milk, with water. And we just uh, bless them, uh, we help them right, with their fasting. Uh, this is uh, Palestinian school. Right, in Beirut. Uh, we also help with the Eve celebration, you know, it's uh, Ramadan. No? Uh, after Ramadan, they will celebrate their after Ramadan festival, like our Hari Raya. But it's, I think, six days or seven days. So this is a camp where we went to help them. And I think we didn't spend a lot, about a thousand, but we could go to a few camp and we just put something simple like balloons, you know, sweets, chocolates, and uh, a bottle of water, and they are so happy. I think sometimes it's not the things that you give, uh, it's the love, the care you put into it. I think a lot of them will appreciate you if you go. I mean, you are from Singapore, very far away. And there are instances where we bypassed a camp, they were, they were shocked, no? When a truck went, they said, Singapore, Singapore, Singapore. Just like, wow, I so, feel so patriotic. <laughs> Like National Day Parade, no? <laughs> where oh my god, I, I feel so proud no? of being a Singaporean carrying our flag there. Right, they just clap, oh, Singapore, Singapore, Singapore. I say, wow, this is something I wish a lot of Singaporeans can experience, but I'm the only one. <laughs> I kind of uh, feel very proud to be a Singaporean, right. They also want to go a bit into a Palestinian camp, right? There are 12 Palestinian camps in Singapore, uh, in Lebanon. And this particular camp in Shatila, right, is one of the worst. As you can see, the wires are over. Right, it's a 1KM by 1KM uh, square camp. And there are 20,000 refugees there. Can you imagine? 1KM by 1KM, but you have 20,000 living there. Right. 
and you can see the wire. In fact, during winter when it rained, there are kids that touch the wire and they were killed. Right? They were killed by the the wires. So I was warned not to go near the walls and don't touch any wires. I guess it killed, you know, it does kill. And there's a stench. I think it's very densely populated. So there's a very bad stench. Right. You don't feel it's um, well air, you feel stuffy. Right. And when I go there, well, I always get this headache. You know? But there's so many turning, it's like a maze. I can never get far find my way out. You know? I have to keep asking people hey, how to get back to Beirut. Because everywhere you turn is the same. Right. But this camp, if you go, you have to go. This is uh, the worst camp. Right. It's filthy, it's stuffy, and it's overpopulated. And every camp is almost like that, with wires, right? The cement is badly done, you know, it's like wow, the building will collapse <laughs> anytime. Right. So this is a typical example of a camp in Lebanon, right? Housing about three hundred thousand Palestinian refugees. Yeah, Shatila camp, right? Unhygienic and stuffy. Right? You can see all the wires hanging all over the shop. Uh, it's built so close that you can actually see your neighbor. It's like Singapore HDB, <laughs> you can see each other. But I think this is worse. Right? They tend to stack on top of each other. Like their son get married, they will build a house and stack on top of their existing house. So it's dangerous. But I've entered into some homes, surprisingly, it's nice. It's well renovated, right? They have beautiful sofa, cut curtains, right? So I thought it's not so bad. But the exterior is not good. The exterior is run down, shabby, and full of wires running all over. Yeah, we uh, invested in a lot, in a lot of uh, education programs. Like this is one Palestinian kindergarten that we support. Right. We support a lot of orphans, right? we fund their education. We also uh, bring hope and cheers. Like when we go, we give, uh, normally it's $1,000 right? for them to buy toys or to buy food during Ramadan or to like uh, support their, their food program right? to those very poor refugees. But everyone is poor. <laughs> Yeah, I think the mental health of a, a kid, you know, a refugee kid is not good. Right? Palestinians cannot have jobs. You can be an engineer or architect or a doctor, but you can't work. So no point. Why should I get a medical degree if I can't work in Lebanon? So a lot of Palestinians face a future of no hope. So they rather risk the unsafe journey to Greece via boats. And a lot of them are killed in the journey to Greece or to Italy, right? Because there's no hope. There's nothing for them, even if they're smart or capable. And a lot of them want to run away. And they can't get citizenship, right? Even their father's grandfather is a Palestinian staying in Lebanon for the last 50 years. So it's hopeless. So a lot of them will escape to Greece or Italy or Cyprus in a boat. And they are willing to risk their death right, to escape poverty and hopelessness in Lebanon. Yeah, this is a Syrian school which we uh, supported quite heavily. 
right? There are 3,500 students. It's in the north part of Lebanon. It's a Syrian school. And I think here we supported about 100 orphans, right? Giving uh, $250 <coughs> a year for each child of education. Right? This school, we particularly uh, well supported. And this is a program which, opt yeah, a lot of my donors are, I don't know why, a lot of my donors supported this. Right, they keep asking, I uh, want to support uh, often for the education. So when I go over, normally I bring six to eight thousand right, of uh, often education money for them. Uh, these are the few orphans that we supported. Each year is 250. Uh, if you support 10 years, it's only 2005. Right? And they will study all through high school. And after that, they're going to varsity, where they will apply for a scholarship right, to study. I don't know whether NUS support them. Or... <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> yeah, so this, I, I would say, uh, very heavily supported right, by us. Like, I would spend a lot of time there, you know, uh, talking to the principal. The principal is standing next to me in the center, right? So uh, I'm quite close with him. He was with me in Turkey when there was an earthquake. So he came along to guide me uh, to help the uh, Turkish Syrian earthquake, right? We're there doing some relief work there. So he came along with me because I can't speak Arabic. And uh, he knows some people in Turkey so we could do something uh, in Turkey for the earthquake victims. Yeah, I like to bring the flat, huh? the Singapore flat, wherever I went. So I, I think it, it's proud, right? It's proud for me to put our country into the map of the Middle East. I'll continue to do that uh, until I'm stopped. Yeah, we also do quite a lot of work in maps, right? Multi eight programs. It's also a Syrian school operating in Bekka and Asa, which is the north part of Lebanon, right? They have 3,000 students, right? And their school is unique. It's all in containers, right? They renovate a container and they put chairs, furniture, and voila, it's a school. So you can have a school of 10 containers. And one container is about, you know, 20, 30 kids. I thought they are doing a good job, right? The Stephen School in the northern part of Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah, there's me with the principal and the teacher. This is winter, so they are all wrapped up. And this is uh, insulated. You can see, right, the surrounding is all the insulation pad. So it's really cold, right, in northern Lebanon. Can goes down to like two or three degrees, right, on the afternoon. So we are proud to, to serve them, right. I think they have a lot of funding from Save the Children. Do you know? Save the Children NGO. Yeah, they receive quite quite a bundle from them. Yeah, challenges faced by Syrian refugee children. You see many Syrian schools I've talked to you, but truthfully, only 20% of them have access to proper education. The rest of the 80% have nothing. They just play, you know, whole day, wake up, play until at night, have dinner, sleep. Right. So, I don't know, it looks like they are aimless, right? Living aimlessly, hopeless, hope, hope, hopeless. And they don't have a goal in life too. You can see them play the whole day. 
Uh, even if they go back to zero, I think they have trouble because they don't have education, they have no skills. And the Lebanese government is aimed to bring them back to zero. But nobody wants to go back because uh, it's risky. Right? They went back, they got killed. Right? So I guess uh, they're in there for a long time. But there's no feasible solution. Right? The Lebanese government don't want them and they don't want to go back to zero. It's tough, right? I, I don't know. I don't see much solution. Wow, finally, so fast. Yeah, thank you. Uh, there's the email. You can WhatsApp me and I have an Instagram. Right. Too bad the website is not working. So these three, you can contact me. Like I say, I'm going in December. If you want to visit with me, <laughs> you can. But I won't advise you to come. Because it's dangerous. Uh. Jew, you want to come, I know. Right. If you want to come, you must uh, sign your death certificate first. <laughs> right. Because it's truthfully getting very risky because of the conflict with Israel and uh, Hezbollah now. Right. So I wouldn't recommend you to come. But I'm still going in December. <laughs> well, yeah, thank yeah. Go thank ahead. you so much, Mr. Gilbert Go. Uh, yeah. Please. Thank you so much for that presentation. Um, we'll now move on to a quick uh, question and answer session. I'm Misha Montero from the Middle East Institute and I'll be moderating this Q&A session. The reason why humanitarian aid is so important uh, to talk about is because it is not an issue that is going away, it is getting larger. And so some macro context for why organizations like Love Aid Singapore are in the Middle East is that over 12 million Syrians remain forcibly displaced, both internally and in neighboring countries such as Lebanon. Lebanon, which has been generously hosting uh, these refugees for many years, has currently uh, going through a deep socio-economic crisis with the collapse of its currency and rampant inflation. Despite the efforts of organizations like Love Aid Singapore, a UN report in 2022 said 90% of the refugees live in extreme poverty with very little hope of relief. So with that said, I open the floor to questions for our audience uh, here with us in uh, the conference room and online. Uh, while we all think about questions, it's not academic event, so please don't be shy. Perhaps I'll kick off with a question of my own. Yeah, sure. So how do you do fundraising in Singapore? Well, good question. <laughs> I think we have uh, social media, so we, yeah, goes a lot into posting, you know, and surprisingly, Singaporeans are very generous especially during Ramadan, right? A lot of the donors are Muslim, right? Because I think, you know, Leban you know Lebanese, uh, Syrians, Palestinians are mostly Muslims. So 80% of the funds come from Muslim public. Yeah, so I would say it's difficult to get funds, especially during Ramadan. Right. Yeah, they donate generously oh, to, yeah, to the Arabs, uh, refugees in Middle East. Okay. Right, so do we have any questions from the audience? I'll please wait for the microphone. Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for this presentation. And uh, it's very important work that you're doing. I think I have, uh, the kind of field trips that you have done, you could be a very good source material for the academics because uh, general researchers are not going able to go there. So. I think you, you're a good source, but I won't ask too many questions, although I have 
I just want uh, because you have gone to uh, Lebanon and I just wanted to know uh, the sentiments on the streets in terms of their support uh, to to Iran. Uh, have you seen any sort of you know people uh, from Syria and the difference between those opinions amongst the Syrians and the Palestinians refugees? So what sort of support they are having in their you know feelings towards Iran and the difference between the Syrian and the Palestinians? Thank you. I think Palestinians have been there for 50 years. Syrians about 10, 12 years. So, yeah, there's a little bit of resentment from the Palestinians when the Syrians came, you know, like to take over you know, their territory. Like in Shatila camp, which I show you, quite a lot of Syrians actually came uh, to occupy. They actually went from the Palestinians' refugees, and these Palestinians will go somewhere else. So I would say there's a little bit of resentment. But after 12 years, you know, I think there's an acceptance there. Like, hey, you are going through the same thing as me. You know, I'm a refugee, so are you. And we can't tell the difference, uh, a Palestinians or a Syrian. But personally speaking, I feel, yeah, uh, that they, some, they, sometimes they are skirmishes, they are fights. You know, I think in South Lebanon, I know in the Palestinian camp, there's some killing going on. Yeah, the factions uh, are killing each other right, as we talk now. Right? And the Lebanese army can't go there. They can't go in because of a UN ruling. You know, that the Lebanese army cannot go into a Palestinian camp. So as of now, I'm not going in, <laughs> though I visit Shatila quite a lot. I think it's scary now to go to a refugee camp. I don't know, you might get killed. And you won't even know they are snipers or they thought you are a spy, you know. So I, I would avoid going to a Palestinian camp for now. Because they are still fighting, especially in the south side of Lebanon, where there's the biggest camp. And they've killed 13 to 14 Palestinians. Among themselves, they shoot rockets and fire each other. But I would say, by and large, there's an acceptance now of Syrians and Palestinians living together. You can have a house of Syrians and the neighbors are Palestinians. And I think I look at them, they coexist quite well. You know, but they are, I think, sometimes petty chorus, you know, like, wow, your kids are coming over to my site. You know, and you're taking over certain places and certain work. So I think there are a little bit of that, but not very large scale. Because they can't work. Officially, Palestinians and Syrians can't work. But they work underground and very cheaply. Can have someone working for 10 US or 5 US a day. Yeah, it's that bad. It's a lot of cheap workers, cheap labor going on. And uh, there are a lot of child labor. You can have a boy seven, eight years old working for like 50 US a month. So child labor is a problem. And Syrian and Palestinian girls, if you are 13 years old, you have your, your period. Yeah, you're okay you know, to marry. 
So we see a lot of Syrian young kids disappear from the classroom because they've been married at 15 or some as early as 14 years old. Right. So there's something that's troubling. And most of them are married because of money. Right. They, they need the money to put food on the table for the rest. And when they're married, they're like the third or even fourth wife. They're not the first wife. So you're yeah, like a slave when you're married like this. And I think it's sad. Yeah, it's a sad culture for these refugees. And Palestinian Syrian girls are beautiful, are very pretty. Right. So they are sought after by all men, unfortunately. Yes, and it's legitimate to marry at 15 or 16. What that said. Right. Yeah, sorry, do I answer your question? Yeah. Right, we have one question online. Yeah. Uh, what motivates you to do this sort of work? And how do you decide which organizations within Lebanon to support? Well, good question. <laughs> when I went there, I don't know many people. I don't speak Arabic. So I have to learn from Maisha. <laughs> right. So I go on a prom, you know, like I would uh, go to you, you know, and uh, we work together. I give you some money, you know, I see whether the money is being passed down. It's a trial, trial and error kind of thing. But while I was there for my first conference in Lebanon, yeah, I could see many NGOs, right, Palestinians, Syrians, Lebanese NGOs. So I networked with them. I got a card. And when I went back, I called on them. I think it's a very long period of trial and error. Of course, there are some that need my help. Right? They are NGO, but they need support. And if you say you're from Singapore, yeah, they, they want your help. Because I think they know you're rich. You're respected. You know? So I wouldn't say I have much problem getting contacts. Like they will refer their their friends and their friends will refer their friends. Yeah, but I particularly work a lot with schools. Right. I do like kindergarten, you see, a Syrian school. I think I work with three to four schools. Because it's safe. Right? Because you won't know you're helping a terrorist NGO. Because they're NGO that actually uh has a front as an NGO, but they are funding terrorism behind. So you got to be careful. Yeah. So I like to work with schools. I also want to see them grow. Like you go back every year, you see the same kid, you know, from year one, year two, year three, year four, to year 10. Yeah, it has a satisfaction. Uh, they are doing something that's long lasting. It's not just one off. Like I go back and they say, you're yeah, amazing. Uh, Say no NGO come back so much like you. Most goes there once, twice, three times, and that's it. But I'm there for ten times. So I think we want a long-lasting relationship, not just a one-off. Yeah. Right. Well, that actually leads me to another question. Yeah. It's slightly uncomfortable potentially. Did you come across any attempts to extort you or any forms of bribery that to deny you access to, to the, these refugee camps? I think there was once I was detained by the Lebanese army in a work block. Yeah, that was frightening. Yes, they were, you know, brandishing their weapon. I think they are telling me, hey, don't fool around, no? <laughs> I have a gun. No? So I was not comfortable. Yes, it's the first time I was detained at the work block by the Lebanese army. 
But after an hour, they released me because the NGO that as I know, I think contacted someone senior, like a general in the army. So I was released. But I was uh, uncomfortable one hour. And in the midst of the hour, I think they arrested uh, a terrorist guy. He was in handcuff, you know. And the men that surround him all have automatic weapons. I guess they are the army uh, or the, the secret army, you know, the police. So these are the things uh, you have to be uh, comfortable with. Right? There are roadblocks. Like from Beirut to Tripoli, there are at least three roadblocks. Roadblocks means you have to sometimes show your passport, your identity. Right? I think they want to filter out terrorists that are in the van that I travel to. So when you go along, you have to bring your passport. Right? Ensure that you have come, even though you have been interrogated. But so far, I've been there 10 years. I, this is the only time I've been uh, subjected right, to a simple interrogation by the Lebanese army for one hour. And they are nice. They, they give me food, you know, drinks, ice cream, you know. So I think, I think they're friendly, yeah. not hostile to me. I mean, I don't look like a crook. <laughs> I don't look like, you know, I'm a terrorist. And uh, from Singapore, I think it helps. If I'm from other country, I don't know. Right. I think Singapore, to me, is well respected, the country. And they give us a lot of respect as a Singaporean. Okay. Right. And any more questions from our audience? Yeah, here? Jill, I know you have a question because you want to come. <laughs> If not, we have another question online. The question is, uh, do you stay in touch with those you help uh, while you are uh, back in Singapore via email? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Email? We have their WhatsApps. Okay. Their, their, I think mainly WhatsApps. Because, uh, it's easier. Right? And like this session, I think one or two of them sign in. Mm -hmm. They're from Lebanon. Oh. So I WhatsApp them a lot, you know. If, Possible, we chit chat, you know, uh, on the phone, but mostly WhatsApps. Okay. And it's very regular. Like every week, you know, we will keep each other updated. But there's a certain Syrian photographer that I uh, keep in touch a lot. I think he's on the on this uh, session. Mm -hmm. And there's a UK uh, teacher mentor that I knew in Lebanon. It's a British uh, teacher the teachers in the Syrian school in Lebanon. So I think it's in also. Right. So I, I try my best. Uh, it's not easy to to chat right, after a prolonged absence because I go back only after six months. Right. So I think there are plans to stay longer, right? like two months instead of a month. I normally stay a month to a month and a half. That comes back. Then I go back again. But there are plans, I think, to stay longer or to be stationed there longer. Because mm -hmm. if not, a month is very fast. You can't do much. I see. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, we have a statement online here, not so much a question. Um, perhaps I'll read it to you, see yeah. what you have to say about it. Um, speaker, sir, I am a third generation Singaporean and was in Lebanon between the end of 2016 2017. I was there at Naya Ibrahim for my Syrian students. I had helped to prepare for the e IELTS under the umbrella of um, the INST Ismaili studies. 
he said he felt no danger. I was he was even able to draw money from his ATM in in Belos. Traveling to Beirut was possible for him. And yes, paradigms have shifted uh, as they have not seen educated Singaporeans, South Asians, so on and so forth. Uh, he would be happy to join your NGO on its wow. trip to Lebanon as it feels like a second home for him. So potentially you can we can get his name from after this event. Wow, okay. But that that leads me to another question. But in insofar as what sort of aid is uh given to the region, what do you think NGOs should be focusing on? Education, healthcare, sanitation, infrastructure? I don't know. For me personally, uh, I like education where we can see the child grow. I think especially girls, I think I feel the Arab girls, the women uh, second class, like they would probably give priority to boys, no? If they have a shortage of funds over girls. Right. So the family, I I presume uh, prioritizing boys over girls for education. So we actually like to fund uh, you know, youngest for their education. Because I know it's not a priority, right, for their their Arab side. Right, so I would focus a lot on education. Secondly, of course, humanitarian. Like winter aid is much needed, especially the northern part where it's quite cold. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's every year a shortage of oil fuel, you know, for uh, humanitarian aid in the. Seven camp, especially in Aksa. Aksa is very north and very cold, and it snow for like a month in the winter, right? And even during summer, it's cold. You know, like now I think it's twenties, but in autumn, wow, it's cold. I was there uh, last December. Wow, I, I wear trick layer. I still feel cold. You know, so uh, Aksa is the northern, very northern side. But Aksa is a bit risky. Because it's very frontier. It's the, at the frontier of uh, Lebanese-Syrian border. So I think like this trip that I'm going, we are focusing on Aksa. But it's so far that I think no NGO wants to go. And it's very near to Syria. Like you can just pop over, you know, it's the Syrian side. So it's a contentious area. They are still some terrorist groups operating there, right? So it's not a safe area, actually, extra to go, yeah. Okay. But I think we want to do something there. But this trip is a place where no NGO want to go a lot. This is cold, risky, and very rural area. Yeah, we want to go, yeah. All right, thank you. Welcome. Are there any more questions in the audience here or online? If not, I would like to thank Mr. Gilbert Goh for his time and for all of us here to maybe give him a round of applause for him and the good folks at Love Aid Singapore for all the good work they do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. All the best for your upcoming Yeah, welcome. You can join me. (laughs) If it's it's on my schedule, I'd love to. It sounds fun. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming. And we hope to welcome you again at the Middle East Institute soon. Thank you and good night. Thank you so much. All right.